Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. It's really an honor for me to be here to speak to you this evening. My wife Janet and I have been here for two days and we have been, and it's our first visit to Abu Dhabi and we've been very impressed with Abu Dhabi itself as a uh, as a place and uh, uh, and as education as a part of the uh, uh, cultural fabric of this community. And we have been blown away today, I would say, by this uh, uh, university, by how it uh, sort of emerged uh, full grown uh, and now is uh, a very uh, active uh, university uh, and uh, is uh, providing uh, students with uh, opportunities in uh, many different disciplines and the facilities here are very, very impressive as we uh, walked around and saw them today, as are the staff that we had a chance to meet with. And uh, so it's been a very enjoyable visit so far. And uh, I hope I can uh, uh, catch your interest a little bit uh, this evening with uh, the sort of things that I'm involved in, which have a substantial overlap actually with the work uh, in the physics department, uh, attempting to essentially understand our universe as completely as we possibly can. Um, <clears throat> in our case, we have had the advantage of going uh, deep underground in Canada in a very active uh, nickel mine, uh, which uh, uh, enabled us to have a location two kilometers underground in such a way that the uh, uh, phenomenon in Canada, which I I'm, I didn't ask, but I, I'm not sure you ever see Northern Lights here. I don't think so. Uh, these are what happens. This is what happens in the atmosphere in Canada uh, due to particles from uh, various sources in outer space uh, impinging on the, on the atmosphere and making uh, the atmosphere glow. And this is a particularly spectacular example of it in, the, in Sudbury. As it happens, there's the, the uh, smelter that uh, uh, takes the ore from the mine. Um, that uh, is something that uh, we avoid because we're looking for very rare signals. We have a laboratory which is uh, one of the lowest radioactivity, if not the lowest radioactivity location uh, ever created uh, by having both uh, great depth to have the rock remove those particles that are causing the atmosphere to glow like that. And, and also by being ultra clean everywhere. Uh, the whole laboratory, uh, which originated with the snow project, which you see here and which we'll talk about, and it's shown here. And then later, in the, uh, starting in 2003, an expansion to other areas that are principally being used to study dark matter these days by having uh, a location where we can present materials of different kinds for dark matter particles that we know uh, exist. At least one model for what is happening in our galaxy is that there are particles that uh, can strike our detectors as we as we pass through them uh, in our uh, uh, in our galaxy. And uh, as a result, perhaps we can, for the first time, see directly what the form of these particles is. Uh, otherwise, uh, they're only known because of their gravitational effects. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. 
uh, having this upper, having this uh, very uh, low radioactivity environment enables us to see, for example, uh, neutrinos, uh, particles that are able to penetrate through the rock with no problem, at a rate of roughly one an hour making a faint burst of light in our detector. And from that, we're able to understand how the sun burns. We can understand what's happening in the core of the sun. We have uh, the opportunity by studying dark matter to see why the Milky Way galaxy has this sort of uh, uh, spiral uh, shape. Uh, we can understand the effects of, of, uh, uh, of uh, dark matter in uh, various scales of the universe where it has had an impact on the generation of galaxies and stars. And we even can understand neutrinos coming from the Earth that come from the uranium and thorium that is contained within the Earth and provides about 40% of the heat flow out of the Earth. And so we can do many things. Um, we can study how the stars like, how stars like our sun burn and create the elements from which we are made, which has implications also for fusion power here on Earth. We can understand the basic laws of physics. And in fact, by studying neutrinos in detail, we have been able to find the first uh, a bit of information that goes beyond what has come to be known as the standard model for uh, elementary particles. Uh, and we can understand what the composition of our universe is, because it is thought that there's about five times as much mass in dark matter as there is in the type of matter from which we are made. And so it's a significant component both uh, from the point of view of particle physics, because we don't know how it fits in our theories, but also from the point of view of cosmology, the study of the evolution of the universe, uh, because it has a significant impact there. Uh, and so that's a description of how we deal with things on the largest scales, but we also attempt to understand the properties of particularly neutrinos in the first place, and, and eventually dark matter where we really don't know how it fits in. And that's with the basis being a model that has worked phenomenally well in other circumstances, known as the standard model of elementary particle physics. It's the one that received a lot of attention when uh, a uh, important part of it, the so-called Higgs boson, was discovered at the Large Hadron Collider accelerator at CERN uh, recently. The picture we have of what things look like in the most microscopic level that we know yet uh, uh, describes our uh, microscopic universe is this one, where uh, the neutrons and protons that form the nucleus of an atom, where electrons go around though that nucleus and form the characteristics of atoms, uh, are formed from quarks, uh, up and down quarks, or rather prosaic names for them. We also know that related to these uh, uh, are particles like electrons, which are much lighter than, than uh, quarks or neutrons and protons, and neutrinos, which are even lighter and which only occur in very rare circumstances, the rare forms of radioactivity or in nuclear reactions that power the sun where uh, literally uh, billions of them are, are even going through all of us right now as we sit here and we, uh, we, we never uh, 
uh, will experience them. Perhaps once in your lifetime, one neutrino will change one atom in your body into something else, and, and uh, you will never notice it unless maybe at the time it happens, it hits you in your eye, and your eyes are closed, like many eyes are usually in my lecture by the time I get to this point. So uh, then you might see a little burst of light like, as we do in our detectors. But neutrinos are outside of uh, normal experience, but they're quite profound in terms of their effects uh, in the universe uh, and, and in terms of our ability to use them to understand uh, parts of the universe that are beyond our, uh, our understanding. And so most of, what's we're, most of what we're familiar with in terms of ordinary matter, as we refer to it, uh, comes from this column, what we call a generation of, uh, uh, of particles, the quarks. There are also two other generations that have been identified quite clearly in higher energy uh, events, either from cosmic radiation or from uh, the highest energy accelerators. They are very similar to the particles, uh, uh, the, the quarks here in this generation, but uh, more massive typically and uh, uh, separate in their properties. Um, the um, addition to this, each particle has a matching particle made of antimatter, which is a, uh, something also that's typically outside of your experience, except if you have heard of, or in fact, perhaps experienced, what's called positron emission tomography. It's a way of doing medicine. And one of the examples of how understanding particle physics at a very basic level enables you to apply it for the benefit of mankind. A positron is the antiparticle for an electron. If a positron is emitted by a radioactive source, and then it finds an electron, it annihilates with it, leaving only energy, which, because it annihilates at rest, it forms gamma rays that go off in opposite directions. And the way in which positron emission tomography works is you put a radioactive material that emits positrons in somebody's bloodstream, you then put detectors around their head, for example, if that's what you're studying, and you look at events where a gamma ray goes in, other, in, in opposite directions. This is relevant to what I'm going to say later on, because we think in the early universe, energy went in the opposite direction. An enormous amount of energy at the time of the Big Bang resulted in producing equal amounts of matter and antimatter, energy converted into the, that combination. We don't know why we don't have large amounts of antimatter in our universe right now. We don't know why this is a matter-dominated universe. But the properties of neutrinos may give us an opportunity to understand that. There are theories as to how that could, in the early universe, result in uh, the uh, sort of matter-dominated universe that we now live in. And so neutrinos become very important in terms of being able to understand such things. Um, so uh, this is the microscopic scale. Let's start with neutrinos and neutrino experiments in order to understand how we use those neutrinos in our measurements, and particularly the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory experiment for which the Nobel Prize was awarded. 
Neutrinos, as you see, are the basic particles. And we always say that as far as we know right now, they're the basic particles. We don't know how to subdivide them any further, but scientists are always careful to say this is as much as we know right now. It may be that there's a structure inside any one of those particles that may be discovered uh, in the future. But they're the basic as far as we know right now. They come in three flavors, as we call them, electron, mu, and tau. Uh, and they are not expected to switch between flavors. They only feel the weakest of all the forces, the weak force, and therefore they can pass through an amount of lead corresponding to the distance that light travels in a year with only a 50% chance of hitting anything and stopping. That's because they don't stop unless they hit either the nucleus of an atom or one of the electrons going around it. If they do, then they have a probability of stopping. And so that's wonderful if what you're trying to do is to get them out of the sun in order to understand the reactions that are, are uh, powering the sun, which is what we were trying to do in part of our experiment. But it also makes them extremely difficult. And so we ended up having to build a detector the size of a 10-story building in order to detect one an hour, as I mentioned earlier on. The standard model said that they should not change from the type produced in the sun, electron neutrinos, and the energy of the processes in the sun is only enough to produce those, that type of neutrinos. Uh, they uh, should not change from that type to the other types, uh, according to the standard model. If they do change to the other types, it implies that they have a mass which is greater than zero, rather than always traveling at the speed of light and having a mass of zero, which is what was in the theory before our measurements. So to do this, we built a detector, which uh, is, as I said, the size of a 10-story building. That person in the picture there is, in fact, to scale. It's 34 meters high, and the cavity is 22 meters in diameter. We used a material called heavy water. It turns out that one in 6,400, I think it is, of the of the water molecules that you drink every day is heavier than the others because there is in the nucleus of hydrogen an extra neutron and makes it deuterium oxide or D2O rather than H2O. And that was important in terms of the measurements we were trying to do. It's very expensive. It's a part of the, it's non-radioactive, but it's a part of what's used as a moderator in the Canadian style of nuclear reactors. And so we were able to borrow amazing to us at the time, $300 million worth of it for, for a dollar. Now that's a good deal in any <laughs> economic environment. We did have to pay a million dollars extra insurance in order to put it underground, but nevertheless, uh, uh, we were able to obtain it. And it is contained in the center of this detector, which is a gigantic acrylic sphere. This was the largest cavity ever excavated at this depth, which is quite extreme, two kilometers. And this is the largest acrylic sphere that was ever created at the time in the 1990s. The tech, some of the techniques learned in doing this by the companies we were working with now result in aquaria that you will see in various places uh, that uh, are quite spectacular in their size and scale. And it has, that te technology has developed in such a way and it, oftentimes Technology is driven by basic science, but ultimately produces things that are uh, quite uh, wonderful in terms of uh, human experience. 
So in the middle is this heavy water. We want to see these faint bursts of light. And so we surround it with 10,000 uh, light sensors, photomultiplier tubes, as they're called, PMTs in our, uh, um, in our parlance. And, and this is, uh, to give you the scale here, the diameter of the acrylic sphere is 12 meters. Uh, there's uh, uh, inside the photomultipliers about 1,700 tons of, wa of water and 5,300 tons outside. And a liner here it makes it waterproof and also prevents radon gas from uranium decay in the rock from getting into the detector because the whole objective here is to have a very minimum amount of radioactivity. And so we go from about a, a part in a million uranium and thorium in the walls of the cavity. And in fact, that's, that's roughly true of almost anything. Uh, the floor here, uh, U, <laughs> about a part in a million uranium and thorium. In the middle, it's lower by a factor of 10 to the ninth. And we purified the water to be about 10 to the ninth or a billion times um, uh, more uh, less radioactive in uranium and thorium than ordinary tap water. It was a major um, engineering exercise as well as a, uh, uh, as a physics experiment. And you can see here the scale of that engineering exercise. We had to do it in this mine in ultra clean conditions. We had to have air that was 10,000 times cleaner than the typical mine air. And uh, everybody took a shower when they came in as you do in uh, producing uh, uh, semiconductor uh, detectors or computer chips, and uh, <clears throat> then put on lint-free cl clothing. So 70,000 showers in the during the construction. And you can see the acrylic sphere was fabricated from about 120 pieces that were scaled to be able to go down in the elevator, or as we call it, the cage for the, uh, uh, for the mine. And so once we had it completed, then, then we were ready to observe neutrinos in a process that looks uh, essentially like the following, where a couple of, of atoms come together and fuse, emit a neutrino in the process in the core of the sun. This is one. There are billions of them being emitted. Uh, they pass through the solar system. They head for Earth. This happens to be headed for Sudbury. Pass through the Earth without any problems. Get past the mine and uh, get to the point where they come into our detector and make a burst of light. And that burst of light is what we're looking for. But by having heavy water, we have the opportunity to have two different types of bursts of light. The first one is very explicit to the type of neutrinos that are produced in the sun, electron neutrinos. And the eventual signal for it is a cone of light. It's kind of like a sonic boom in electromagnetic radiation. And it's distinctive of that particular reaction. We have a second reaction, however, where any of the neutrino types, electron, mu, or tau, are capable of breaking apart the deuterium into a neutron and a proton. And that neutron we detect in three different ways that we can distinguish from the first reaction. And therefore, by looking at these two reactions, we can tell if electron neutrinos are all of the total neutrinos reaching you, or whether, for example, the first reaction is only one third 
in terms of numbers of electron neutrinos compared to the total, which is what we actually observed. And so what we found is that we had a, a measurement that was very uh, clear that neutrinos had changed from electron neutrinos into the other neutrino types as observed by the second reaction. And by looking at all the neutrinos coming from the sun, we were able to test the theory for the energy generation in the sun simply by looking at that second reaction. But we had to be careful because uranium and thorium can produce gamma rays that are energetic enough that uh, they can uh, uh, enable that second reaction to take place, mimicking what a, a neutrino would have done. And so we had to be very careful. We had to purify the water to the point that in terms of uranium and thorium decay, we had one radioactive decay per day per ton of water in the detector, extremely pure water. But in doing so, we were able to get the following results. Now this graph shows you uh, a projection of what's called a neutrino flux. It's the number of neutrinos per square centimeter per second reaching the Earth of the type that we were studying produced by a particular reaction in the sun. This is what the models predict in terms of the total number of electron neutrinos produced in the sun. This is what we measured with electron neutrinos, only about a third of the total. On the other hand, when we measured all neutrino types, including the electron neutrinos that had turned into mu and tau neutrinos, emphasized by this cross-hatched region here, we found that it matched very well with the calculations of neutrinos produced in the sun. We were able to make measurements that showed that uh, there's only a chan one chance in 10 million that electron neutrinos were not changing into other neutrino types. Five standard deviations is the term that's used in particle physics for a discovery, and that's what we did. So what did we actually accomplish by doing this? Well, uh, by building the, this lowest radioactivity location, observing only one neutrino an hour, but doing it for about 10 years, um, we could prove that neutrinos change from one type to another and have a finite mass, requiring changes to the standard model in terms of how neutrinos fit into that model. And uh, this is what the Nobel Prize was awarded for. But it also v validated the calculations of the production of neutrinos in the core of the sun, which are very similar calculations to what is done in order to calculate what the uh, processes will be in nuclear fusion power reactors here on Earth, where the attempt is to create the fusion of elements similar to the ones that are producing these neutrinos in the sun, confined by magnetic fields instead of being confined by gravity as they are in the sun. And so it's a validation that the calculations that are being used for a very practical purpose here on Earth are in fact correct under the most extreme conditions, which is very, very difficult to validate otherwise. And so from that point of view, it's an example of how basic science can contribute, as I said earlier, to human uh, value. But it also proved what we observed that neutrinos are not the dark matter 
that we'll talk about in a moment uh, that fills the spaces between the stars when you look out on a, on a starry night. Dark matter particles behave differently than any particle that's ever been observed in the laboratory, including uh, neutrinos. They're much heavier, we think, than neutrinos, if in fact it is particles that are describing it. And this led to the establishment of Snow Lab, going beyond the original Snow experiments, in order that we could study more completely this phenomenon of, uh, of dark matter by using the same sort of conditions as we created for snow. <clears throat> so let me, let me switch from what I've been talking about and let me talk a bit about dark matter, but first let me motivate this a little bit by uh, talking about cosmology, talking about the Big Bang Theory, and uh, not this Big Bang Theory, I was invited at one point, uh, it's one of, the, one of the perks that this Nobel Prize created, I was invited by the technical consultant for the Big Bang Theory program, which unfortunately is now off the air, although young Sheldon is uh, doing a great job of uh, <clears throat> picking up. David Salzberg actually worked for us when, in the summer when I was a professor at Princeton, and uh, uh, he invited me to come and be Geek of the Week, which meant standing around with the writers uh, as the show was, was being presented. I didn't do anything, but uh, if I was Stephen Hawking, I might get on the show, but I'm not. <laughs> um, but the way they do it is they film it, and if, if, it, if there's a live audience, if, if it doesn't get a laugh, then the writers rewrite that joke and try it again. Anyway, it was a fascinating experience, and so let's, let's get more serious. This is, in fact, our concept these days of what the evolution of the universe is since the Big Bang. We really don't know what happened before the Big Bang, and we don't know, in fact, at that time, which is an enormous amount of energy uh, having been deposited in a, <clears throat> in a very uh, small space. Um, we don't know some of the mechanisms associated with it, although we know an awful lot more in the last 30 years than we knew before that, and a lot of the information coming from wonderful measurements being made by uh, uh, satellites, uh, uh, physics experiments on satellites. The space program has contributed significantly, and we've made some contributions also uh, uh, through the underground experiments, uh, unusual measurements that haven't been made before. So let's talk about how this uh, is thought to occur. Uh, there is this enormous explosion uh, uh, following, followed by uh, substantial inflation, as it is, as it is called, uh, followed by an expansion thereafter. Uh, and this all occurred on the order of 13 and a half billion years ago. It says 15 over here, but that's since been updated. So in this initial uh, uh, explosion, there's been enough energy. You'll notice the, the temperature inferred at that time, 10 to the 27 degrees Celsius, which is, uh, oh, I won't comment on Abu Dhabi weather, but uh, <laughs> you're better able to experience it than I am as a Canadian, let's say. <laughs> um, in a very short period of time, all of that array of particles, as far as we know, was created through uh, energy being converted into matter and antimatter. Um, subsequently, after about a microsecond, 10 to the minus six seconds, um, 
quark, things have cooled off enough, you know, only, only 10 to the 13 degrees Celsius, such that uh, quarks can combine into protons and neutrons. Uh, after about three minutes, um, you uh, have uh, the uh, uh, formation of atoms, uh, but uh, only after about 300,000 years do you end up with the electrons uh, combining with the, um, with the nuclei formed here to produce neutral atoms. And at that point, the light can shine through. And there's been a remarkable set of experiments, particularly most recently from the Planck uh, and the WMAP satellites that show uh, the distribution of, of, of light um, that exists uh, as we can measure it today from that particular period, 300,000 years after the Big Bang. That's followed by a period uh, where uh, one can uh, uh, know about uh, galaxy formation, which is strongly influenced by dark matter and by neutrinos. And uh, uh, that is uh, about a billion years after the origin, and so about 12 billion years back in time, which is a sort of motivation or part of the motivation for the James Webb Space Telescope that has uh, recently been launched and which appears to be a very successful uh, exercise and will be objective, for example, for the Square Kilometer Array in South Africa uh, in future. So there's still a big question, as I mentioned, and that is, what about this matter, a matter, antimatter asymmetry? Where's all the antimatter gone? And, and so one of the things that we are attempting to do is to, and have come a long way and we're almost finished in terms of repurposing the snow detector to measure something called neutrinoless double beta decay. In this case, what you want is to pick an element which has the possibility of uh, two beta decays occurring without any neutrinos being emitted. And that then, uh, if you can get enough of this material and by replacing the heavy water with a material called liquid scintillator that gives you 100 times the light output, you can then observe a phenomenon. And in order to do that, we had to make major renovations to the uh, snow detector. It's now running with this liquid scintillator installed and we're preparing to install the tellurium over the next two years. The process is that the so-called beta decay where and one electron and one neutrino are emitted. Um, <clears throat> in this case, you can do it for nuclei that are separated by two uh, 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 atomic numbers. Um, and then you'll get, similar to what you get from ordinary beta decay, a continuum of energies if you sum the energy of the electrons. And that's because the neutrinos are carrying away some part of the energy and they go in different directions and so you get a continuum. If no neutrinos are emitted, which can happen if neutrinos have certain properties, and you sum up the energy of the electrons, then that is a peak, uh, which you see here at the end. And that's what these experiments seek to uh, measure. And there's an enormous set of experiments internationally uh, that are seeking this. One of the ones that will be among the most sensitive is the so-called Snow Plus experiment. This can only happen if neutrinos are their own antiparticle. 
because there isn't any difference between the two other than perhaps uh, their spin, which is a quantum mechanical uh, property. And that is a property that fits very well in the theories of how this process uh, of antimatter decaying in the early universe uh, can work. They're, they're daunting experiments because uh, the lifetimes that are involved in this rare radioactive process that would lead to this peak are in excess of 10 to the 26 years. So, but if you think about Avogadro's number, if you remember from a way back in, in, uh, in school, um, six times 10 to the 23 atoms in, in, in a molecular weight of a material, if you get tons of material, you can get a fair, fair number of atoms there, and then you can wait for 10 years or so and see if, uh, if something decays. But you really need to get rid of anything else that can produce a signal in that, in that region. And then hence being underground in the lowest radioactivity laboratory in the world is absolutely a, a prerequisite for doing this type of experiment. And if we are capable of doing this, for a, a, a signal that is at the limit of current measurements, we would see a signal that looks like this, uh, this red sitting on, this is the signal from, the, uh, from the, end, the tail of that continuum, and this is other radioactivities that are suppressed rather substantially. We think we can, we can get a sensitivity uh, on the order of, uh, something less than 100 milli electron volts uh, or 0.1 electron volts, uh, which is almost a million times smaller than the mass of an electron. And so it really is uh, a sensitive experiment. And uh, it, it's done, it's sort of the ultimate recycling process uh, with the, the whole experiment being reused. So now let's talk about dark matter and how it can influence things. The measurements that were made of this so-called cosmic microwave background, the light left over from the point at which uh, the uh, light began to shine through, um, have already been exquisite, made with the experiments such as the Planck uh, satellite. Uh, in addition to that, there are a number of other indications of the fact that uh, there is dark matter in our universe that makes up about five times as much mass as the matter that we're made of. This is, just, this is just to show you that you see this line, this blue line that goes through these data points, which are averaged as the, as the red points. You can see the data points scatter around a bit, but this is the average. And it matches almost perfectly for a model of the universe that includes about 25% dark matter content in the universe. And it, that would show up in a, in a difference in this particular peak in this uh, spectrum. The model fit to this data is really one of the remarkable achievements of science and the Nobel Prize has been awarded for that. We think it's weakly interacting as well. And this is a, a uh, um, sorry, I missed one slide. Let me, let me go back for a moment. Why do we think it's around us? Well, if you look at um, our Milky Way, I'm pushing the, uh, uh, the wrong 
slide, I'm not pushing the laser, I'm pushing the slide changer. Let's try it again, there. If you could see our Milky Way galaxy side on, which typically you don't when you look out at the sky, you're seeing that pancake side on. And so it's a band of stars across the sky. But if you could see it side on, and many other galaxies look of a similar type, then it kind of looks like uh, a spiral like this. And if you measure how fast the stars are as you move out from the center, the ones, this, this is a plot of the data, the ones that are the farthest uh, uh, out in radius, which is plotted along the axis here, this is their velocity, the profile looks like that. Well, if you asked, if it's just this glowing matter that's holding them in their orbits, pulling them in like a, a swinging a bucket of water over your head and, and holding onto the string, that gravitational force would not be enough to hold them in that, in that pattern. You need five times as much other material, which is referred to as a dark matter halo. And using general relativity, you can also observe similar things by looking at how the light from galaxies is distorted by dark matter in front of them. And again, very similar results. We think it's weakly interacting. One piece of evidence for this is the fact that here's a, a picture of two, two clusters of galaxies that have managed to pass through each other. Uh, the red or the pink here being the ordinary matter measured by x-rays, the blue being the imaging of it for the dark matter content. And what's observed is that the dark matter passes right through the other matter, apparently not observing any effect from it. And so we end up with this model for the universe as a whole, which has 4% us, 4% ordinary matter, 26% uh, dark matter, and 70% another form of what is referred to as dark energy, which was inferred from the fact that you were lied to in high school. That is, uh, gravity is not always an attractive force. Uh, there is a small repulsive component that is measured by measuring supernova for which you can determine exactly how much light was produced by this supernova, and you can therefore determine the distance simply by how much reaches you from such a large distance, just the fraction of the, of the total uh, emission that gets to you. And secondly, by measuring how fast that supernova is, is, is moving by measuring what's called the redshift, shift into light due to the velocity away from you. If you do that and you plot it up, you find that after the Big Bang, things have not just accelerated according to what you would expect from, from gravity as an attractive force, but there's a small component that is accelerating it. And as a result, you can translate that into uh, an energy component, and uh, that makes up the other 70%. So uh, we know that uh, uh, dark matter is a substantial part of our universe. We know that it exists in our galaxy from those rotation curves I described to you. And now we're trying to see if we can observe it directly by letting it hit various types of detectors in our laboratory. And so this is what our laboratory now looks like. Originally, it was just this component over here for the SNOW project. The expansion produced four or five new sites 
for uh, experiments, and it was designed to attract uh, people from outside Canada to come and work with Canadians in, uh, in, in a program the Canadian government put forward and that financed this, uh, uh, this laboratory. There are now a number of experiments that are collaborations between Canadians and, and uh, international groups. Uh, as I said, most of them aimed at dark matter. And interestingly, they are experiments that present the dark, present the atoms at which the dark matter is to hit in different forms. Uh, the one I'm going to describe to you is the deep 3600 experiment that uses argon. There's another one that uses helium. Another one here that's just, just starting uses germanium and silicon, and others somewhat smaller that use silicon. And this one uses fluorine. We also have Snow Plus looking for something very different. And it's all, the whole laboratory, ultra clean, better than class 2000, and very low uh, fluxes of uh, neutrinos. So this, I mentioned Stephen Hawking earlier. Stephen visited us twice uh, underground. He was, this is about one year before he passed away. Uh, he was adamant that he really wanted to see this laboratory and what's happening with, with dark matter. And uh, so we didn't require him to have a shower uh, when he got underground, but we vacuumed him off on the surface and he came down in a special car in his wheelchair. But uh, absolutely remarkable individual. WIMP detection is a matter of having, presenting an opportunity for a WIMP to interact with a nucleus, causing it to recoil just like a, a billiard ball on a, on a table when hit by the cue ball. Um, the, our passage through, uh, through, the, uh, uh, through the galaxy, uh, plus our seasonal effect of going uh, around the sun, uh, gives velocities that uh, make it possible to uh, make measurements of that <clears throat> interaction producing a burst of light. Um, argon has special properties that if that burst of light comes from a nucleus recoiling, it's emitted in seven nanoseconds, a billionth of a, of a second. Whereas for light produced by radioactivity, it's emitted in, in uh, 1.7 microseconds, about 500 times longer. And so we simply digitize all our pulses and we can get rid of the radioactivity and throw them away. This is what the detector ends up looking like. It's pretty similar to the uh, snow experiment in that there's this inner sphere here which has light sensors attached to the outside of it. And just to show you the lengths we go to to try to deal, deal with radioactivity, the final thing we did was to insert this sander. There are rotating disks on either end and it uh, lifts up so that it's inside this tube in order to get through the long uh, tube to get to the detector, then it opens up and it rotates around to cover the entire inner surface and take about a half a millimeter off it. And so you end up inventing technology to do your physics, and this is a, a clearly obvious one. Now, after having made uh, sensitive measurements with uh, the deep experiment with three tons of liquid argon, We've now joined with scientists from, uh, you see the list of countries there, 
um, about over 400 scientists from around the world, to build the next largest experiment at about 20 uh, tons, active volume out of 100 tons total. And we are planning to, uh, the collaboration is planning to move to the next generation at 400 tons um, for the, the ultimate experiment. We're using a technology that was developed at CERF, developed at, at CERN for uh, a detector that's going to happen at SURF, uh, underground facility in South Dakota, where the beam being shot from uh, the Fermilab accelerator, referred to as uh, the, the Dune experiment, uh, to provide an outer vessel uh, at filled with liquid, ar liquid argon. And then there is a inner vessel inside this. Uh, this is what it will look like in the Grand Sasso Laboratory underneath the Grand Sasso Mountain in, uh, in Italy. And here, we not only look at the light, we also put an electric field on and drift the electrons produced until we get uh, uh, an added signal at the top of the detector. It's called a time projection chamber. And once again, we're using acrylic as an ultra-pure material in order to try to avoid radioactivity. Technological development, we're going to have 21 square meters altogether of what are called silicon photomultipliers, a new type of photomultiplier that have potential, op potential uh, application, for example, in improving positron emission tomography uh, by reducing the amount of radioactivity you have to use such that it's not dangerous to use it at that level for, for assaying children. And so, again, pushing things for basic science results in pushing technology of value to humankind. It has remarkable, they have remarkable properties. They're very low on radioactivity as well. In order to do the experiment, we need ultra low radioactivity argon. It turns out that argon that comes from a carbon dioxide stream used to um, pressurize oil wells in Texas, which happen, the, the carbon dioxide stream comes from uh, Colorado, uh, and uh, we have identified that it's 1,400 times lower in one of the radioactivities that's produced by cosmic rays in the atmosphere, uh, so that uh, we can use it in this new experiment, dark side. We're going to do that. We're going to purify it in a uh, facility that's almost complete and has tested very well uh, in Sicily, size of the Eiffel Tower, in order to uh, make it ultra pure, and then eventually we'll. Uh, then send it to the actual experiment in uh, Gran Sasso, a little bit east of Rome. So what can we do with this? Well, uh, this is a summary, and it's a complicated figure, I, I realize, but let me just try to interpret it so you get a feel for where we are. This is the sensitivity for the interaction of a dark matter particle with a nucleon inside an atom inside the nucleus of an atom. And the lines on here that are solid indicate that no dark matter particle with an interaction probability, anything above that line and a mass corresponding to this range here could possibly be an interaction that is similar to what's observed for dark matter in the gravitational information 
in what happens in our galaxy and so on. And slowly, as we build bigger and bigger detectors, we're improving the sensitivity. These lines go down to, for example, the xenon experiment, in which people here are working on, has the potential uh, in the next uh, few years of having a sensitivity which is almost a factor of 10 better than sensitivity so far. Our experiment is similar uh, to, uh, to, that. <coughs> to that, and ultimately this 300-ton experiment will get even further. Our problem, ironically for me, where the most important element of the experiment I got the Nobel Prize for was detecting neutrinos, Neutrinos are the background that we can't deal with any further in this experiment. You can't shield them out, even if you went very deep. I mean, neutrinos pass right through the Earth with no problem. They will be a problem in limiting these experiments. However, the theorists trying to understand where dark matter particles were, were, are going to uh, uh, show up as an extension of what we already know, say it's quite reasonable to try to think of particles that only interact with this sort of strength, sort of probability of interaction at this sort of mass. We're also having complementary experiments at the Large Hadron Collider. We are observing dark matter particles that were produced in the original Big Bang. They are attempting to produce them again for the first time since the original Big Bang but they have to have enough energy to be able to do it. You'll see that you know, their sensitivity peters out at around this energy. Ours extends beyond that, and uh, we also have uh, certainly greater sensitivity in terms of, uh, of the uh, ability to uh, uh, observe uh, the interaction with matter. So um, that's what I wanted to tell you about today. And uh, we're, uh, in summary, um, we have a much more complete knowledge of our universe from the smallest to the largest scales. And that has come from a combination of astronomical measurements and other measurements, uh, uh, such as the ones we do in underground laboratories. There are a number of fundamental questions still remaining to be answered. Having an extremely low radioactivity background in your laboratory is providing excellent conditions for doing this, and we're addressing very fundamental questions. But we're also using cutting-edge technology, and, and that's a strong underlying resource that's valuable for society's needs. The important message is science is fun. It really is, and it also can be very practical. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.